Good morning. Today's passage is Acts 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Molly. Uh, well, Sean said earlier, good morning again. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Um, I've had a couple weeks off. I, I want to say, and we don't have to clap because I don't want them to have a big head, but man, Demeter, uh, Vince, and Charles, they did really well. It's amazing. I told you not to do that, but okay. Um, uh, it's amazing how much like when you, you're there and just being exposed to the church for as long as I, I can and hear this in grace, there are times when you hear people speak and you go, oh no right? Um, and all three, I mean, John has preached before, but even for Vince, who that was his first time preaching, and then Charles, you're like, dude, like these are, these are gifted guys. Um, so anyway, big ups to them. I'm really, was really jacked about that whole deal. Um, if you don't know, we're in the book of Acts, and as Molly came up and read, uh, we have this text that we got to go through, and this is where I want to start. Um, today's going to feel a little bit like a theology class, so if you're new, um, uh, know this. Oh, I'm supposed to tell you guys about some things. Redemption Church is one church, 10 different congregations. Um, want you to get plugged into community, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, no, so yeah, um, so we've been going through the, the, the book of Acts, and uh, I want to kind of stop because the passage that we're going to get to is, is a little different, and, and because of that, today's going to feel a little different, and if you are new, um, it's not always going to feel like this. Usually there's about three or four times a year where I get up and say, hey, I'm not a guy who really focuses on notes, but I'm going to stick to my notes because of the nature of the topic. And um, there's a lot of work we got to do to get to the passage that Molly read. Actually, there's 15 verses before that passage, before that part that makes up our whole passage that we're going to go through and sit in so we can understand what's going on with the sons of Sceva. Um, Now, in saying that, here's what I want to say, okay? Because there's going to be a lot of preface to lead up to this. Um, I want to acknowledge, and I want you to know that I'm acknowledging in this moment as we go into the topic that we're going to be talking about, that I wholeheartedly believe that God can do whatever he wants. Um, And I don't mean that from a sovereign place, though I believe that's true. That's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, um, if you remember back in October, I I preached a message essentially uh, talking about in Matthew 7 that there's going to be people who stand before Jesus and they're going to say and think they know the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't. They're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And um, I, I called out Benny Hinn in that moment. And maybe you didn't like that or did, did like that. Regardless, I, I kind of brought that to, to the, the table. Well, you know, what's crazy about that whole idea is people afterwards had told me they were saved in a Benny Hinn 
conference, right? Um, actually, I know a guy that I worked with for a couple years at Trivita. We had dinner, Candace and I had dinner with him. Um, I actually worked with, we worked with his wife, but um, uh, met with him and talked with him. And he claims that his eyesight was restored at a Benny Hinn conference. So here I sit, right? Um, not really knowing what to do with that, not believing that what Benny Hinn and the course that he's going and believing, whether you believe it's right or wrong, that he really is a wolf in sheep's clothing, yet God is using this ministry to do some crazy things. And I want to just stop before we get into what we're going to talk about and just acknowledge very humbly, there are things that God does. And I go, okay, I don't know. Like you can do whatever you want. I mean, I stand here as a reformed complementarian telling you that I got saved in a charismatic church under the preaching of a woman. And, and I, I don't know, there's, I look back and I go, I, I don't know what to do with that. So I, I want to start there because there's a lot that we're going to talk about um, that, that feels like, God, you're, what are you doing here? Specifically, as you just read in the Sons of Sceva, there's a part where, where people are bringing aprons, touching the skin of Paul, and then, and then demons are afraid of that apron, right? And that's a bizarre deal. So for us to get into what we want to, I want to read the first 15, uh, 15 verses uh, and then explain a little bit. We're going to do a lot of talk and a lot of things that needs to, to, to be said before we get to the sons of Sceva, but we're going to actually focus in on the early part of chapter 19, where she came up and read the back part of chapter 19. So let's, let's pick it up from there. Verse 24, this is where Charles left us, and he had set us up for, if you guys remember Priscilla and Aquila, Charles had talked about, we're going to meet them again, and this is where we meet them again. Here it is. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native to Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Let's stop real quick. And just so you know, we've been showing maps, and, and John, uh, Charles, and Vince all did a great job of showing maps. I'm going to bring the maps back up on the screen next week, because I want to dive into what the, the, the point of this topic is, and, and what this text is getting at. So just know, no maps this morning. So we're talking about a guy named Apollos who came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, uh, competent in the scriptures. Okay, so this is what we know so far about him. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 27. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So we have this man, Apollos. So we've been following Paul, right? But now we have this man, Apollos, who's coming on the scene. He's competent in the scriptures. He knows the things of Jesus accurately. And yet there's this couple that comes along, Priscilla and Aquila, and goes, hey, actually, let me show you the scriptures more accurately. And that, that's, a, that's a big thing, because he knows of the baptism of, of John, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but he doesn't know all the rights and ins and outs of everything he should know. So he learns the text more accurately. And if you can hear me, that's what I want to do today about what we're going to be talking about. I, I, I want us to understand the language that we use sometimes. I want us to understand the jargon that is in the Christian world and what it means, specifically what's going on with Apollos, that he's a believer. He teaches the scriptures accurately, but he only knows of the baptism of John. What does that mean? Okay. So the camera's there. We're going to follow uh, Apollos into Ephesus and it's beautifully kind of overlapped. We follow Apollos and then it picks right back up into Paul. Listen to what it does. Verse one in chapter 19. And it happened that while Paul, while, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So now we're to Paul. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into then what were you, ba- into, uh, then uh, were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the, the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. 
Now, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men at all. Okay, so we're going to focus on those first seven verses. But let me read verses 8 through 10, because we're going to actually come back to it next week. I know it sounds a little silly, but I'm going to reference back and go back to verses 8 through 10. But here's the rest of our passage before we get to the sons of Sceva. So continuing on, these, well, let, let's sum up what we got so far. You have these men who are called disciples, verse 1. Paul goes up to him and says, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they go, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible calls them disciples, okay? They haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. He explains the whole thing of this is what happened with uh, the baptism of John, which again, I'll explain in a minute. Here, be baptized in the name of Jesus. They are baptized in the name of Jesus. And then it says this in verse 8. And then Paul, he entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10. This continued for two years. Again, we're going to come back to all this next week. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But again... Where I want to sit on is this idea of there are 12 men in Ephesus. So we've been following the power of God, following the mission of God, what's doing. Now we come across 12 men of Ephesus that the Bible calls disciples. And then Paul asks these disciples if they've received the Holy Spirit. And they go, no. Paul then begins to explain all the things of Jesus, the way of the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized In the name of of, uh, Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues, okay? Now, up to this point, what we have found, the reason we're going to sit on that passage is this is not the first time. We saw this in Acts 2. We saw this in Acts 10 and 11. We continue to see that the Holy Spirit comes upon a group of people. Maybe they speak in tongues. Maybe they preach the word boldly. But they come on and we hear this language of baptism in the Holy Spirit, filled in the Holy Spirit. And I actually want to take today to look back at all those texts and explain what's going on. When we hear language in the church today, what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled in the Holy Spirit. What are we talking about? Okay. And I want to explain this and that's why it's going to feel like a theological class, but it's important for us to understand our text. I got to do a ton of legwork. Now, here's what I'm going to say. You might not be familiar at all why this is a big deal. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you came here. You're not even a Christian. Um, and you have no idea that there are some who come like myself from a background that completely split churches over what we're going to talk about. So my goal today is to provide clarity of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? This is a big deal because if we read this text just carte blanche, what we get is the fact that there are some of you and maybe me, right, who are disciples, but we don't have the Holy Spirit if we read this in a certain way. So what are we supposed to do with that? Yet yet I come from a tradition that would would, uh, say that exact idea and we would push against that. So Um, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about that idea, but I need to start to make sure we're all caught up on why this is a big deal uh, in the history of our church, okay? So about 50 or 60 years ago, there was a debate that arose of something that started 100 years ago, meaning in the 60s, there started to be this debate of what happened in the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And what had happened was, uh, uh, kind of trailing at the end of the Great Awakening, you began to find this movement.
movement of the Spirit, where great denominations were grew out of. But essentially, the moving of the Spirit, they began to read the book of Acts, when you can read it prescriptively or descriptively. They looked at it and goes, this isn't just describing what God's doing, but ultimately, we should live into this in such a way that we can speak in tongues, right? That we can slay people in the Spirit, we can prophesy. And so there's this huge move of the spirit, and it brings about maybe language that you might not be familiar with, but there's things that are in California, the Azusa Street revivals in LA, that that God begins to move in all these crazy ways. So this goes on for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. This is all true story. I'm not making up. This is what happens. The spirit comes alive in different ways in the early uh, 1900s. But then in about 1950, 1960, guys begin to go, wait a minute. Here's the, the dissonance that I feel in this. You're selling me that I become a believer, but now I need what is called, essentially becomes to be uh, coined as the second blessing. You receive Jesus Christ, but then you receive the Holy Spirit. And guys are looking at that going, that's not right. Because we believe you can't even receive Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit. Meaning that he's the one who regenerates you. He's the one who moves on you first. And because of that, you respond. So there's confusion in this. Now, um, from this timeline, as it continues, these gigantic denominations grow. And and just so you're aware, there's more than 500 million people on the entire earth who consider themselves part of that movement. The movement that says the Spirit began a work that was different in the previous centuries, in the early 1900s, and we're part of that. Uh, Denominations like the Four Square Church, Assembly of God Church, the PCG, the Pentecostal Church of God, all come out of this denomination. And they're, in their statement of faith, they have things like, so we believe in the Word of God, we believe in the Trinity, we believe in Jesus' deity. And then they have a specific line where they say, and then we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. So you might not be at, at all familiar with this world, but at least you're caught up on the history of how all of this plays out. Now, again, this is a big deal because are they right? I mean, who's right in this? So I want to explain what we, not just what Redemption Church believes or do my best, and I'll give some caveats to that, but ultimately how we can understand the text well and understand our passage well. But before I do that, I need to say one more thing before we uh, get into some explanation. Um, this conversation is not monolithic. I think we all do ourselves a disservice when we paint large groups of people as a, and, and put them in a certain category, right? So on one side, you have guys like Benny Hinn, who I brought up, Pat Robertson, a lot of what Bethel does, though I like a lot of Bethel music, there's a lot of stuff that Bethel does that is on one side of the spectrum. They believe that these things are continuing. And on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, you have guys like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. MacArthur actually did a conference and wrote a book called Strange Fire and drew a line in the sand and saying a lot of these Pentecostals and Charismatics aren't even Christian. So you have these polar opposites, and it would be easy to fall into either one of those categories. But the reality is the spectrum is so much more beautiful than that, because in the middle of that, you have guys like Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms, John Piper, that are in the middle of this, who would call themselves charismatic, that they are spirit-filled, yet they're then the same camps as guys like MacArthur and Reformed Theology, R.C. Sproul, most of the Puritans. So it's not so easy for us just to go here or there. Matter of fact, Sam Storms wrote a book called Convergence. And the subtitle of that book, and it's immensely helpful, me transitioning out of the charismatic world, called, uh, it's called uh, Convergence, The Journey of a Charismatic Calvinist. So, so it's, it's this weird deal where it's not as easy. So this is where I want to stop um, and let you know where I'm coming from in my own journey in this, Okay. So if you don't know, I was saved, and I've explained this before, into the charismatic world, saved into the, the Assemblies of God denomination. Again, walking in, flags waving, people speaking in tongues. Um, I've spoken in tongues. Um, I've been slain in the Spirit. 
Uh, I have, as a leader, eventually became a leader. I looked at people, teenagers and men, um, that I helped them speak in tongues. I slayed people in the spirit. And so here's my journey going along. And and what I began to see, um, that this isn't just always true of just the movement itself, but I began to see um, a lot of prosperity gospel, a lot of name it and claim it theology garbage that was mixed in with a lot of that tradition. And and I saw kids, 14-year-olds, who wanted to speak in the, the, uh, uh, the heavenly language. They wanted to speak in tongues, but because they weren't receiving that gift, they felt like they didn't have those Holy Spirit and God didn't love them. And they, they left the church. And I'll stand before God for that stuff. I'll stand before God. But as a leader, I was a big part of turning people away from the church because of false doctrine. And so what had happened was I was introduced to reform theology. More appropriately, I was re- introduced to reform systematic theology. And now suddenly I'm able to pocket all these different things. Well, what happens when babies, when they die? Okay, this is what I know. What do we do with tongues? Here's what I know. And I was able to begin to pocket. And we, we, we decided, as I looked at all the, the ew of the tradition that I was in, all the, the negligence that the tradition I was in, and I looked at my kids. Titus was just born. And I said, man, I don't want my kids to grow up into the legalism that is involved, the prosperity gospel that is involved, the name it, claim it, theology is involved. And so we ended up coming to redemption. And it was about two, a two-year process. And I tell people this all the time. Um, you might not be familiar with this book, but Wayne Grudem has a book called Systematic Theology. It's a fat book. I read that book three times in one month. I read it, I just, I was so excited to be introduced to theology, the systematic theology that I just was like, I mean, I'd read more than my Bible, I read it more than I prayed, I didn't spend time with my wife, I just read it and read it and read it and read it, and I was so excited. But here's the deal, as time has gone on, um, something's happened. I look back on some of those experiences, I look back on some things that I saw with my eyes, and I go, I don't have a category for that in my systematic theology. I don't know what to do with that. I'm telling you, I've seen things that I go, I don't know. And, 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 and I've written more papers on a, for a person, not for school, just for myself, to try to write down where theologically I stand on these issues. I've thought so much about this that even when people ask me now, well, what do you think about tongues or how do you feel about being slain in the spirit? Sometimes I just respond with, I don't know. I go back to what I said in the beginning. I humbly Acknowledge that God does things that I just don't understand. So with that in mind, I want to present to you up to this point in my life, how we can understand what it means to be baptized in the spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the spirit? What's happening with these men in Ephesus that they know, or at least claim to be, or at least the Bible calls them disciples, yet they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Cool? Well, let's do it. Let's start with... um, uh, this, this move of the spirit in general. Um, here's what I want to say. This is not something that was uh, unplanned, okay? So before Jesus comes on the scene in ministry, here's what we know about the movement of the spirit. It's um, portrayed or proclaimed by a guy named John the Baptist who we were introduced to in the book of Mark. And he continues to say, before Jesus is on the scene in his ministry, there's someone else coming. There's going to be a guy who's coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you in even certain parts. He says he'll baptize you in fire. I'm baptizing you in water, but you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So look at some of the passages here in Matthew 3, 1 at the back half. It says he will baptize you uh, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke three sixteen. he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark 1, 8, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then John 1, uh, 33, which is important that 
you know that John's there because if you're not familiar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Usually what is said in Matthew is also kind of said in Mark. Not always, but usually. But when John says it as well, lining up with those other three books and it's said in all four gospels, it's usually an important detail that all writers felt they needed to mention. And again, in, in John chapter one, Verse 33, it says, uh, he whom uh, you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist is saying, there's a guy who's coming. He's going to bring the spirit in a different way. And then Jesus acknowledges this when he does come on the scene. And he's saying, yeah, the spirit's going to come differently than you've known it before. This is what it says in John chapter 14. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus talking, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you will know him because he abides with you, now hear the future, and will be in you. He will be in you. Now, it's not just there, but Jesus then from that moment, he goes to the cross, he's raised from the dead, and then we get the book of Acts. And before we get hold of the speaking in tongues thing in Acts 2-4, which we'll read in a second, Jesus affirms again that this is something that is coming. It's something different. Listen to Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He again says it in uh, Acts 1.8. Charles came up last week and said, it feels like it's the same sermon over and over because we always reference Acts 1.8. But at the beginning half of Acts 1.8, we're familiar with the back half, that he's going to make you martyrs or witnesses to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. Before he even says that, listen to what he says in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So whatever is supposed to happen has been planned. John the Baptist talked about it. Jesus is saying, no, 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 something different is coming. And then it comes. And Acts chapter 2, verse 4 is what we find. Here's, here it is. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterances. We get the day of Pentecost. So, so now they've been waiting. John the Baptist talked about it. And now here comes the Holy Spirit. He falls. And people begin to speak in different languages, right? So there's a guy from China who hears a, that's Chinese. How does he know Chinese? There's obviously not a guy really from China there. But the point is it's a, it's a different language that, that, that they're speaking in that moment. He hears it and he goes, that, that's Chinese. I know Chinese. He, he doesn't know Chinese. How does he know that? And so the spirit falls in this crazy way. There's this definite, different outpouring of the spirit in that moment. But then here's the catch. Peter gets up and explains what happened. And it's what Peter says that, that ties this whole thing together. Because as Peter hears the people calling them drunk, they're crazy, they're speaking in other languages, they don't know what they're talking about. Peter then says this in um, Acts 2, in the sermon that he gives, verses 15 through 18. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last day, Last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Peter goes, and this was before John the Baptist. The way that the spirit has now come onto the earth in Acts 2-4 was different than it was with Moses. It was different than it was with Abraham. It was different than it was with David or Adam or Noah. It was different. And Joel told us there's a day 
when this guy, Jesus, or this Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, when he arrives on the scene, he's going to bring the spirit in a different, powerful way. A different, powerful way. And and this has been talked about. So can we just acknowledge that this idea of the Holy Spirit coming into our life was not unplanned. It's not a new thing. More appropriately, it's not something that we should be afraid of. So um, one of the commentators, I think, commented really well in saying this. I don't have this quote, so you'll just have to listen. It says this. The day of Pentecost is much more than an individual event in the lives of Jesus' disciples and those with them. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit was at work throughout the Old Testament hovering over the waters in the first day of creation, empowering people for service to God and leadership and prophecy. Hear this last line, but it was a lesser power. So, let me catch us up. Peter, the apostle, before Acts 2-4, was a disciple. He came to know Jesus Christ. He followed Jesus Christ. But he did not receive, at least in the greatness of the power of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, until Acts 2-4. This period, time period, is extremely unique. Now, hear me when I say this. We believe that faith only comes from God. So check this out. Can I, can I explain to you how you're saved? It's an easy task. Here's, here's how you're saved. Um, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God makes you alive. This is all Ephesians 2. God makes you alive. So here you are. You don't want God. You want nothing to do with God. But God stirs you up. He, what is called theologically, regenerates you. And now suddenly you want different things. You want God. And so you call upon him. So salvation is something that God moves on first, something God does first. It's the Holy Spirit come upon you, coming upon you, waking you up. So you have the Holy Spirit. Peter had the Holy Spirit in that sense. The Spirit was moving over the face of the earth in Genesis and prophecy and all of that. But Peter did not have the greatness of this power. And so here's what I think and I would argue is happening. Let's go back to our text. It's a lot. I told you it's going to feel like a class. Um, In Ephesians 19, what we have are disciples who are operating in that old lesser, lesser power of the Holy Spirit. We have disciples who haven't even heard, which I find odd, they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit because the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit, yet, at to, yet to this point. Uh, matter of fact, Wayne Grudem, whenever talking about this topic, you can feel safe in quoting Wayne Grudem, um, says this, In Acts 19, we encounter a situation of some people who had not really heard the gospel of salvation through Christ. They had been baptized in the baptism of John, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the baptism of John the Baptist, according to verse 3. So they were probably people who had heard John the Baptist preach or had talked to others who had heard John the Baptist preach and had, bad, and had been baptized into John's baptism. They certainly had not heard of Christ's death and resurrection, for they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Therefore, these disciples in Ephesus did not have new covenant understanding or new covenant faith, and they had certainly did not have a new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit. They were disciples only in the sense of followers of John the Baptist who were still waiting for the Messiah. When they heard of him, they believed in him, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit that was appropriate to the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem says, these guys heard probably John the Baptist or someone who heard John the Baptist, a a melee of that, a response of that, and they received that there's this Messiah coming. Now that's the trick, right? They believed that this Messiah was going to come and they didn't have the spirit and power yet, okay? Now, that doesn't feel like a big statement, but it is. You ready? Let's try to tie this together. I'm excited. I don't know if you are, okay? But here's where we get how we should understand what is baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
When you hear this language, what is baptism of the Holy Spirit? Here's how we can know, okay? Um, Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the language is used seven times in the New Testament. That phrase, baptizing the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Six of those times all refer to John the Baptist. The first four are what I showed you on the screen, that the gospel brings out other four. The other one is uh, Jesus brings up, uh, brings up, and then the other one is Peter brings up. But, bo- but both of those next two are re- responding to or are calling back what John the Baptist said. But the seventh um, uh, mention of baptism of the Holy Spirit is really key for us. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't know if I have it on the screen, and I apologize if I don't. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made a drink of one spirit. Now, I need you to hear. It's the same Greek structure of he's going to baptize in the spirit. And it's important because I don't think Paul, when he says we were all baptized, I don't think that all is just the Corinthian church. Here's what I think, and I would argue it is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because of Acts 2-4 and the day of Pentecost, for you to receive Christ in that moment, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's the only seven mentions in, in the New Testament. In that moment, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and this, is, this is key for us because it's a unique period of time for chapter 19 of Acts. Because the gospel is still growing. The spirit power is still growing. There are still people who are responding to John, which we never, none of us heard the preaching of John the Baptist. But now we have the Bible who talks about this. And from this moment, Acts 2, 4, everyone who hears of the name of Jesus, which they hadn't heard at that point, as Paul explains the name, uh, uh, who Jesus is, you're baptized into the Holy Spirit. So just breathe if you don't agree with that, because I grew up charismatic and I'd about lose my mind right now if I was you, okay? Um, hear, hear this, again, quoting Wayne Grudem, safe. Um, the question remains then. What is actually happening for millions of people who claim that they have received this baptism of the Holy Spirit and that it has brought much blessing to their lives? Ready? Could it be that this has been a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, but that the biblical categories and biblical examples used to illustrate it have been incorrect? Might it be that there are other biblical expressions and biblical teachings that point to this kind of work of the Holy Spirit after conversion and help us understand it more accurately. So the tradition I come from that I got saved in would say this, you receive Jesus Christ and there is a second blessing. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, just listen to what they say uh, within their um, doctrines of faith, that every believer is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and with fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all Christians, uh, early Christians in the church when it came to the endowment of power and service, bestowment of gifts and uses. Now hear this. This experience is distinct from the sub... Uh, I'm sorry, let's start over. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. So they would say that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you receive Jesus. And what I'm putting in front of you is that's not correct. You are baptized in the name of Jesus. And I think they use this language, and I use this language because, and this is the trick, there is something after you're saved. There is. And I'm, I'm okay with calling it a second blessing as long as we're calling it a third blessing and a fourth blessing and a fifth blessing, but I don't think that's what they mean. I, I, I'm okay with even using the language of baptism of the Holy Spirit if we pocket it in the right categories. But ultimately, what we would say is, as believers, you've all received the Holy Spirit. We've all been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But this is where it becomes tricky. 
because the Holy Spirit in the Reformed community is the crazy uncle at the family reunion. Like nobody, nobody wants to talk to him. Nobody wants to get involved with conversations because you don't want to be crazy like him. And nobody knows what the Spirit's going to do. He just might make you speak in tongues real quick. And then there you go. I got, Brandon, can you give us a tongue real quick? Vince, why don't you go ahead and interpret that? And then we don't like, this is just, I don't know how to handle this. I start slaying people in the Spirit. We don't know what to do with that. Right? So, so it's, it's awkward when we push away. But here's what I'm going to say. Um, Though baptism in the Holy Spirit, the language is incorrect, um, being part of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, the idea of God continuing to move is not. It is not incorrect. Let me prove it to you. Just in the book of Acts, um, after the, the day of Pentecost, I want you to hear something that happens with the disciples. I want you to hear something that happens over and over to the people of God. After they've been baptized, they come to know Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has fallen. Okay, so Peter was at the day of Pentecost. Do we all agree on that? Acts 2.4, Peter was at the day of Pentecost, right? But listen to some of these things that happen, okay? In Acts 4.8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. If you remember, John and and Peter were were, uh, put in prison at this point. Now, did, did Peter have the Holy Spirit up to this point? Yes. Yes, he did. Okay, but somehow, in some different way, the Spirit comes in a different power. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to proclaim. Listen to Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place uh, where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak of word, the word of God in boldness. Acts 7.55. This is Stephen right before he's about to be uh, stoned to death. But being full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we already know before this, when, when he's called to be a... Um, uh, uh, a deacon, when, when Stephen's called to be a deacon, he is a man uh, of the spirit. But somehow in this moment, right before he's about to be stoned to death, all these rocks are about to be pelted at him. He is in a different way than in Pentecost or in a greater way. He is filled with the Holy Spirit like he wasn't before. But we're not done there. Listen, there's more. Acts 10, 40 through, uh, well, let's just read 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Acts thirteen nine. But Paul, who was also known, or but Saul, who's also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on them. So my point in saying this is yes, at baptism, understand this. It is right for you when you become a believer to understand you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But hear me, it does not end there. You are to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's crazy about that idea of being filled, it's a present imperative, meaning it's a command that is ongoing. You could quite literally translate it, continue being, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over again, you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this idea um, is not new. It's not something I'm coming up with. Um, and at this moment, I want to add two caveats as I read something, because um, I'm going to read something from Sam Storms uh, from that book, Convergence, The Journey of a Charismatic Calvinist. Um, there's two caveats with this. One, I want you to know what I'm talking about in this moment is an open-handed issue within redemption, okay? We have three open-handed issues. If you go onto our website, we have creation, the age of the earth, all that. We have the apocalypse, eschatology, and the way it's all going to end, and then we have the spirit, Okay, how he operates in gifts and all that is an open-handed issue for us. And you can talk about all that from, you know, however you want. But here's the second thing. Um, After this service, normally I would go to the lobby and I'd stand by the connect desk. I'll come up after service and I'll stand right up here, sit right here. And if you have any questions about what's being talked about, 
I want you to come up and ask. And maybe I can't answer in that moment. Maybe you have further questions on how I describe some of this. Shoot me an email. Shoot one of the elders an email. And we would love to talk with you more about um, understanding some of all this. But, but here's what, where I want you to grab. Listen to Sam Storms as he says this. Um, what time is it? Um, okay, keep going. Keep going. Um, this is what it says. He describes something called the third wave. Okay, now this, this may be goofy to you, but it's called the, the third wave because it's a different way of understanding. That's not just the MacArthur method or it's not just the Benny Hinn method, but there's this third wave that we can understand. The third wave is a term used to identify evangelicals who not only believe in, but consistently practice and minister in the full range of the Spirit's gifts. According to this view, Spirit baptism describes what happens when one becomes a Christian. Therefore, all Christians, by definition, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You ready? However, there is also multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit's activity. After conversion, the Spirit may yet come with varying degrees of intensity, wherein the Christian is overwhelmed, empowered, anointed, and in some sense endowed. This release of, of new power, this manifestation of the Spirit's intimate presence... Uh, intimate presence is most likely to be identified with what the New Testament calls filling of the spirits. So um, what he's saying is it is right for us to believe that at conversion, at regeneration, we've been baptized. We all have the spirits, but it doesn't end there. So I've tried to think of a million different ways to explain this. And I went and played basketball, if that's what you call it, on Thursday with John Demeter. And uh, we went and played and... Um, I asked him this question, dude, what do you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, knowing we were going to talk about this? And he had given me an example that they use within uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. So you probably have heard this example. I've never heard it before. He thinks it's lame because it's been talked about over and over. I thought it was a good example. I wasn't going to use it, but I actually want to add to it, okay? So here's the example that has been used. So I apologize if you've heard this before. Imagine there are three glasses of milk, right? You have this first glass of milk that's just milk. You have a second glass of milk that you take chocolate syrup in and you just pour it in. Okay? And as the syrup enters the cup, it just falls to the bottom and sits at the bottom. And then you have this third glass of milk that you pour the syrup in and you stir it up, right? And the idea of this analogy is that those who are not believers, those who don't call, consider themselves Christian are, are the milk. They don't have the Holy Spirit. But upon regeneration, those who call themselves Christian receive chocolate syrup, right? Receive the Holy Spirit, Okay. But it doesn't end there because there is a stirring. There is a continual uh, uh, being filled of the Spirit. Now, here's what I would add. Um, If we're not careful, we can forget that there actually would be a fourth cup of milk that is continually being stirred. Because I think in the moment, if you can look back on your salvation, you go, holy cow, God is so good. And the Holy Spirit is stirred within you. And maybe you're witnessing, you're doing all these things. But if we don't continue to rely on what the Spirit is doing and who the Spirit is, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that chocolate is going to settle again. And so we are continually over and over and over being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if I can just stop real quickly and say, I think this is where we miss it. I think this is where our fear leads to. I think ultimately Within the Reformed community, um, I think there are moments where we don't want to acknowledge, hear me, the Spirit is here. I'm not trying to be weird if you're not a believer. He's here right now. Like in the quiet, he's here right now. He's right next to me. It's not for emotionalism, but he's here now. Like right now, if you're quiet, he's talking to you. He's right next to you. He's encouraging you. He's convicting you. 
He's bringing you along. He's reminding you of the things that Jesus said. If you would just listen, he's with you right now. He knows that you feel that angst within your heart. He knows you feel the brokenness of all that's going on in your life. And he's with you right now. I don't mean in an ethereal sense. I mean, quite literally, the spirit is right next to you. The spirit is within you. He's moving right now. And that's not something to be afraid of. That's not something we should step back from. But to understand that we can receive the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus Christ or receiving Jesus Christ, that there is an ongoing filling of the Spirit is something that we cannot run away from biblically. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, dudes flips over tables. So, so for us to acknowledge that this is an ongoing work is super, super important. Now, I don't think it's coincidence that it's from that understanding that we have these disciples who hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They are then essentially, I would argue, baptized in the Holy Spirit as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, come to know Jesus Christ as disciples at the point following John. And then we have this moment as we talk about the Spirit being filled. I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's in God's sovereignty that we come to the passage that Molly read. We come to the sons of Sceva. Here's what I mean. If you haven't already, you're not already there, let's, let's do it. Let's get to that passage. It took us a long time to get back to where we started. But verse 11, it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away, uh, were carried away to the... Uh, to the sick and the, uh, the di- I'm sorry, and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, before we get to their saying, let's just acknowledge what's happening. So Paul, the camera's still on Paul. Paul now in this moment, God is using him in such crazy ways. If you remember Peter, when Peter's shadow just touched people, Paul's being used by God in such crazy ways that women are taking off their aprons, touching the skin of Paul, and then like kind of using it as a combatant where any demons are. Here we got this touched Paul. And this is bonkers weird. This is just a weird moment that, that, that here he is. And so, so Paul is taking like this handkerchief, blows his nose, gives it to somebody, says, yeah, go cast out demons with that. that. He has all these aprons. And if you give your love offering for $77, he'll send you one of those aprons. And no, he doesn't do that. No. So the, the, the idea though, is God is moving in such a way, in a, a very unique way that the spirits are truly afraid of Paul because of the God within him. And then there are these itinerant, I love this, the itinerant Jewish exorcist. So if you're from that tradition, it's not that odd from, for the charismatic figure who casts out demons to come to your church. It was probably quarterly from the church I came from. Some revival guy's going to come in and he's going to slay in the spirit and cast out demons. But these are Jewish itinerant exorcists. So they come in, they know what's going on all with Paul and they say, dude, Let's get it in right now. And this is what they say. They go to cast out some de- demons. There's the seven sons of Sceva, as we'll find out. It says this, I adjure, uh, adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So the one that Paul's talking about, that's who I'm talking about. I'm with him. The seven sons of, uh, of, uh, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And I'll, because they're demons, they probably cussed in that moment. They're like, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who the blank are you, right? They're demons. They definitely cussed, um, okay? 
So, so, so hear this. Jesus, who are you? Verse 16. And then, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the seven sons of Sceva come in and say, yeah, we'll take care of that. They walk into a house fully clothed in the right mind. They leave naked and bruised. They lose. Okay. They lost that battle. Now, from this moment, there's this crazy revival that takes place. Here, here's here what happens, okay? And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all or them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Um, and, and a number of those who had uh, practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, all that was found, 50,000 pieces of silver, which is about $6 million. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's what happens. They see that fake don't play with the demons. They see, like, um, so I, I've shared with you, I love building, but one thing I'm super afraid of is electricity. I don't mess around with electricity. Let's bring in the, the, the professionals for that stuff. Because I've seen dudes who think they can just kind of nonchalant mess with electricity and just be popped, right, real bad. And I'm not even trying to get into that world. So I'm like walking around outlets like this, okay, because I don't want to be electrocuted. But what I saw in those people getting popped created a healthy fear of electricity within me. So these people go, we just saw those seven, seven sons of Sceva walk in there. This stuff's real, y'all. We ain't trying to mess around. They put their Ouija boards, their Harry Potters, their Twilight books all on the pile. And they go, hey, listen, I'm not trying to mess with the demonic anymore. This stuff's the real deal. Where is Paul? Okay? So there's this revival in responding to this crazy work of what the Spirit is doing. But what I want to acknowledge in this text is you have men who are trying to operate in the ways of God without really knowing him. That we want to, when we've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim to be Christians, but we don't really walk in that. And this, this is what took three weeks for me to get my mind around. This is what was so hard for my heart to really get, get at, to ask the question, do I want it? I mean, do I legitimately want to rely on the Holy Spirit? Do, do I get caught up in the things of this world so much that I think I have all of the answers. Do I really want that power? Do I really? Do I really? Let me read something to you from A.W. Tozer that I think is helpful. He says this. Again, I don't think I have it because I sent it too late. We may, well, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the uh, instinct until the uh, incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the spirit are all but gone. We have limited the world, or I'm sorry, dang it, what's my issue? We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. Tozer's point is saying this, is let's, let's acknowledge something in the room. We ain't relying on the spirit. At least for the most part, let me speak for myself. There is not a continual, according to Ephesians, stirring of that milk. There's not a continual. There are moments where I think I've got it. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to meetings praying that I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because this is what's crazy. Hear me when I say this. You, you as a Christian have the power to cast out a demon. You. 
You ain't got to call in a professional. There ain't got to be itinerant Jewish exorcists who come in. You have the spirit of God. Now, I, I would be amiss to um, not walk us through at least to finish. And, and again, I said this is going to be a class, so I apologize if um, it didn't all make sense because it still don't make sense to me. So I hope it helped you. Um, how do we do this? I think this is always the hard part. We use these cliches within the, the church to go, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to walk in the Spirit. Okay, what does that mean? What do I do? And, and I would give you, you two things. One, according to Romans 8 and Colossians 2, there is a tangible way of seeking the things above, setting our mind on things above, to acknowledge that the Spirit is at work, to put our mind in the places that the Spirit is doing certain things in the same way that Ephesians 5.18 compares the Spirit to wine. Meaning, as he tells you to be, spill, uh, to be filled with the Spirit before that, he says, don't get drunk on wine. Don't be intoxicated on wine. Now, obviously, the Spirit is a live, real person and not wine, but the analogy is beautiful. Because think about it. Listen, think about your old days when you were drunk. Hopefully, it's your old days, and that's not what you do anymore. But, but when, you, when you took that, uh, that, that uh, sip of alcohol, nobody took the beer, took a swig right away, first beer, and goes, I am hammered, Okay? Unless you were weak, um, okay? But nobody took that first drink and was totally plastered. No, here's what you're doing. When you take that alcohol, you're drinking it. You are actively partaking in that alcohol with the hopes that the alcohol will do what it's supposed to do. You don't have any control of the alcohol doing what it's supposed to do, but you have the, the, the job of drinking the alcohol. And then the alcohol will do its work. It will inebriate you. It will begin to intoxicate you, and then that is the way. And what Paul is saying is he's correlating the same idea. You don't have any power of the Spirit. He does what he wants. But there are things, there are ways that you can drink of the Spirit, and that is intentionally setting your mind on things above. That is continually going after, intentionally going, God, there's times when I read my word that I don't fully understand it. I'm praying that you move. And that's the second thing, is that I'm praying that you would move is a huge deal. Pray for it. Pray for it. Pray that God would move on you. Now, here's what I leave you with. I think there are four, according to the New Testament, um, ways that you can see if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So let's just, let's make this real systematic, Sean, after you talked about not systematizing all this. But I think there are four ways that you can very practically see the Holy Spirit moving in the New Testament, okay? So uh, here's the first way. I would say... um, The first thing that we can recognize is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit in a moment, you are filled with this crazy adoration of praise. And this is where the charismatic tradition gets caught up in speaking in tongues because they always correlate, well, you're baptized in the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, and you speak in tongues. That's not always the case. If you look very closely at those texts, they're extolling and worshiping God. Sometimes it's with tongues, but they're extolling and worshiping God. Always, when the Spirit is, is moving in that way, it's not always tongues, but it is always this crazy moment of, God's nuts. And I'm, this is where personal experience I got to put in front of you. There have been moments where I've been driving in my car and then I'm just thinking, dude, God, you're crazy. Like this crazy moment of, <laughs> I don't know. Like, God, this is, look at that. Like you're doing some awesome things. This is amazing. And, and maybe only if you're a believer, you can understand what I mean by that. But there's a crazy influx of praise and worship to God. The second thing is, I think you're going to be crazy, wild, bold in your witness. We find this over and over in Acts, right? So there's a moment where you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you begin to proclaim. Um, I was talking to Jude last night 
Um, and, and we were talking about uh, this idea. And Jude uh, says there's a couple new guys who came to, to work at his uh, job. And he says he starts talking to some of them about God. And one of the guys goes, yeah, I just, I don't know if I have time to, to, to think about all that God stuff. And Jude, Jude says, I don't know why I said this. Because this isn't like Jude at all. He just looks at him and goes, well, maybe on your deathbed you'll have time. Okay. And then he's like, Phil, you want to talk about Jesus? Okay. Anybody else? No, I didn't think so. Let's get back to work. Okay. That's what he said. I didn't say it. That's the way he tells the story. Okay. Uh, But the true story is there's a moment where you go, I don't know why I'm saying this, but this work of the spirit fills me. And I just got to tell you this. The third way is obedience. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see this over and over again. If people are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is this recognition, according to Romans 6, that you are not a slave to sin. Hear me. This is what makes us different than Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims. This is what makes us different. That the Spirit of God lives within you in such a way that you can beat that porn addiction. You can. By the power of the Spirit, it can break the chains of sin in your life. That you don't have to continue to live into the greed of this world. The spirit can break that. Now that language of breaking all that may seem super charismatic, but hear me, you are not a slave to sin anymore. When the spirit of God comes, those things happen. And the last way is, yes, gifts. And there's, again, no way around it. Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. We see that when the spirit comes along, that in some way there is a gift God moves into you such a way. And, and this is where I want to say, this is an open-handed at, at, um, issue at redemption that maybe you're asking, well, do you believe, still believe in speaking in tongues? Good Lord, I don't know anymore, okay? I don't know how to categorize the, the experience back then. I have a lot of opinions. And again, I'll be up front. I'd be more than willing to share those opinions. But at the end of the day, it is clear that God moves in a way that suddenly um, the gift of hospitality, you're working it out and you're like just getting it in, Right? That, and I would argue what prophecy is not what we think it is, but the gift of prophecy w- would be alive and well, right? So in that sense, I would, I would be a continuationist, right? This is an open-handed issue with redemption. Um, where MacArthur or guys like R.C. Sproul, who I love and appreciate and read over and over and over again, would say that those things have ceased. And I would say, no, that's not true. But it seems clear to me in the book of Acts that, that things, that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that the gifts of God do come upon you. Um, that's all I got for you. I, I hope that helps um, for us to understand this passage um, required a lot of background for us to see men who were called disciples and then to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a very unique thing, unique thing. And I thought it would be important for us to understand what that means. So moving forward, we're not going to see these things happen again. So I thought this would be the time that we would do it. Um, my prayer for you is that you would at least contemplate these things and recognize that the spirit is with you right now, wanting to move through you right now in crazy, awesome ways, and we would not um, suppress him at all. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us. Um, We acknowledge that there are things that you do that we just don't fully understand. I mean, geez, Isaiah 45, 7, that you bring light and darkness, good and evil. What does that mean? How do we how do, we, how do we wrap our mind around that there are moments that you allow calamity to come into our life? Like if you're good and you're, like, it's, it's, it's difficult. And, and the Spirit is one of those things that it's hard for us to understand how, Holy Spirit, you work. Our prayer would be that the theology that was put in front of us today, according to biblical texts, um, would be accurate. And if it is not correct, 
that we would be convicted and we would set the course in the right direction. But more than anything, we would not walk away from here, something that I know I believe personally, God, that we are to continually being filled, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would continue to acknowledge that as we go to work tomorrow, we would pray, Holy Spirit, come upon us. That as we raise our children, Holy Spirit, come upon us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving this gift, that as you left, you left this gift with us, that we have this power in front of us, the ability through the the death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit power to conquer sin. It's awesome. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.